What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Jason Dinsmore, President Unscripted at Fremantle North America. Jamila Hunter, on a previous episode, called Jason out, said to stop ducking me, said to stop ghosting me on my emails. I've been trying to get Jason on this podcast for a year, literally a year, and finally it pays off. But I understand it. I get it. He's one of the busiest guys in the business. At one point in this interview, I kind of recite back to Jason all the shows that Fremantle is currently producing, and even he like needed to get out like a paper and pencil and go over it with me because off the top of his memory, it's it's impossible to keep track of all the shows they're currently working on. Shows like The Price is Right, American Idol, America's Got Talent, Supermarket Sweep for ABC, Game of Talents, the upcoming show, To Tell the Truth, Press Your Luck. The list goes on and on. We talked about the era of reboots that we're currently living in on broadcast television, and Fremantle is certainly at the center of that conversation. But we talked about Jason's backstory, the career path he was on before deciding to come to California and pursue a career in television. It's one of the more thought-provoking and surprising backstories that we've ever had in the history of this podcast. So I appreciate him opening up. Uh, Jason is a private guy, doesn't like to talk about himself. He's a humble man, so I get it and I respect it. But by the end of the podcast... Um, you know, we, we didn't want to get off the Zoom together. You know, we were having such a great time. And Jason's one of those guys that when he was at NBC uh, as a young up-and-coming reality TV executive and I was just this punk assistant, Jason was one of those execs that was just so kind, always willing to stop and explain things to me. And I, and I, and I appreciate it. I appreciate him making time for me and doing this. This is my sit-down with Jason Dinsmore. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so Jamila Hunter called you out. She absolutely did. I can't believe she did that. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, look, dude, I was avoiding this like the plague. Um, I just, I'm a private person. I don't really love to sort of put myself out there. But she absolutely did. Well, um, and then she also texted me on the side and said, I called you out. You have to do it. Were you, did I give you a heads up for that? Or did you listen to the episode and, and hear it in the moment? I can't remember if I gave you a heads up. You did not give me a heads up. She texted me. I guess probably while she was recording it with you, she texted me during her session. She was like, I'm calling you out right now. All I did was talk about you and how you won't do the show. Well, you did bring this on yourself, Jay, because literally a year ago, you and I were sitting in the New Orleans airport in a lounge together. Both of us must be the same personality type because we were both there very early before our flight. And we had like an hour long conversation and you basically walked me through all the questions I would have asked you on, on, a, on a podcast like this. And I've been begging you ever since to come on. So I'm glad Jamila could, could be my agent. I was going to do it. Sorry. I was going to, I'm here now and I'm actually really excited about it. You, your podcast is amazing. Um, everybody I know listens to it and they mention it all the time. In fact, I was on a call with somebody last week who said they listened to Jamila's podcast and they also called me out. <laughs> All right, I so like I want, your backdrop. I like your backdrop. Oh yeah, I got the backdrop. So I got like, uh, you know, here in the garage. I mean, those are great albums. I got, I just added some Peaches and Herb and the Pat Benatar because I had people calling me out that I had no women represented on my vinyl album covers. The rest is Huey Lewis, Steve Martin, Marvin Gaye, Frank Sinatra, Simon and Garfunkel, and Eddie Murphy's comedian album. So I added Peaches and Herb and Pat Benatar literally a week ago because Jamila Hunter called me out on having no women represented. <laughs> That's really funny. That's so good. there you go. All right, Jason, let's start from the beginning. Are you a New England guy? I can't remember. Yeah, I was born in Massachusetts um, in a small town called Tewksbury. It's between Lowell and Andover. Lowell was like the textile uh, capital of the nation, also known for lots and lots of crack. Uh, and then uh, Andover is like the Richie Riches where Phillips Academy is and the Bushes went to school. And I lived in between in a town called Tewksbury. How many brothers and sisters? Um, I have one older sister and one younger brother. Um, so my sister is three years older and my brother is nine years younger. And was it a religious home? No, not at all. 
um, though I was religious, um, they were not. So that, no, it was a pretty chaotic childhood. Well, were our mom and dad still together? Did they stay together? Um, not, no, my mother, my mother and father divorced when I was, um, somewhere around three or four. And okay. my mom remarried quite quickly when she was like five or six. Okay. So my stepfather was basically my dad for most of my life. Um, but he passed away about a year and a half ago. Oh, wow. So they were still together all this time, your stepfather and your mom? Yes. And they had my little brother. We're extremely close. He's my best friend. We talk pretty much every day. He's in Texas right now. And they're going through some stuff, but they're safe. Oh, wow. Is he in the, yeah, he's in the middle of it right now? Yeah, he lost power for like a day and a half. Um, he still doesn't really have water, but they've figured it out. They got to work around. And he's nine years younger. He's nine years younger. So you were only in the home together for so long, but somehow you guys have stayed close. We weren't close when we were younger. We became okay. close later in life. Um, and then he really truly is my best friend. He's the person I talk to when I'm the most down um, and when I'm in my best spirits. What does he do? He works at a chemical plant, sort of like oil refinery, gas plant. So he's living a, he's living a Texas life. He's straight up out of urban cowboy. He <laughs> is literally it, is. Do you guys see eye to eye on politics and, and social issues? No. Not, not, not that I want to stereotype uh, someone who lives <laughs> at a, not that I want to stereotype someone who works at a power plant in Texas, but that, that's where my mind went. No, we don't see eye to eye at all, but um, we respect each other's opinion. Um, and we actually do talk about it. Huh. Um, but when it gets a little touchy, we just, you know, we, we go back to the poker table. So I wanted to get to the religion thing early because I only have so much time with you. And that is such a fascinating aspect of your, your backstory. And it's why I've been telling people just, you know, in on calls I have or meetings, I'm like, do you guys know Jason Dinsmore's backstory? Like before he got into entertainment, like what career and spiritual trajectory like he was on? And nobody seems to know this about you. I mean, I think I heard it a long time ago when I was an assistant at NBC, because I feel like you know, Ben would keep people waiting. Jason, I don't know if you're familiar with Ben Silverman, but sometimes he keeps people waiting. He doesn't always, not the most punctual executive in the world. And sometimes people would just plant themselves in that outer office where I would sit and you would just start making small talk. And those were some of my favorite moments of working at NBC. And I feel like maybe something out of there, you mentioned something in passing about how you went to like Bible college and we're going to be a pastor at one point. And, and when we talked a year ago, you, you took me through the whole story. And that's why I've been excited for you to share this with, with the listeners, because for the most part, a lot of us in this industry have very similar backgrounds of, of how we somehow get into entertainment. You did not. So, I mean, tell me, you didn't grow up in a religious home, but yet how did you end up where you ended up coming out of high school? Let's start there. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. At least it is for me. So um, I grew up in the Bible Belt, you know, um, South Texas, Lots and lots of Baptist churches, and um, I was kind of a loner kid. I was one of the smarter kids in my my uh, my class. Um, and for whatever reason, in my year of school, the smartest kids also happened to be the best athletes, and they all seemed to go to church together. So um, when I was like fourteen or fifteen, I got invited to like a weekend retreat um, at a local church. And I'll tell you what, it's quite powerful when. Uh, a, a person is speaking so eloquently and sharing with you sort of uh, the, 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 the tenets that you've been looking for as a human to lean into and really surround you in a family type setting. So I, I bought in, uh, I bought in pretty big time and uh, it was amazing. It was, a, it was really amazing. It was like for the first time I felt supported and like I had good parenting um, and I very much was a part of that. And then of course, like we all do, I became a leader in the group. Uh, um, and then towards the end of high school, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. And I sat with my youth minister and he said, have you ever thought about, you know, being a minister, being a pastor, being a leader? And uh, I said, no, not particularly. He said, but you realize that you are one within our group. Um, and it sort of light bulb went off. I found a calling. Um, and uh, I applied to one college, got in. It happened to be a Bible college. I was um, basically full scholarship, and I studied. Um, my major was technically religious education, and I had a biblical languages minor, so Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> and what college was this? 
Uh, Howard Payne University in uh, Brownwood, Texas. Brownwood, describe Brownwood, Texas. As a person who has lived in California his whole life, what, what, what is Brownwood, Texas? If you've seen Friday Night Lights, that is Brownwood, Texas. So okay. it's a town of about 19,000 people. Um, they had 66 Baptist churches. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, my school had a little over 1,300 students. So my college was actually smaller than my high school. And the denomination was Baptist? Yes, I was, uh, I was involved in the Southern Baptist uh, community and uh, the Baptist General Convention of Texas. Hmm. I was licensed and ordained. Um, Wait, no, don't, don't start jumping, jumping the gun here on licensed and ordained. Don't, don't start going that far. Wait, you said, you said, I asked you when we started this, are you a New England guy? And you said Massachusetts. So did you migrate to Texas like somewhere around your tween years? How did you get to Texas? Yes, we moved to Texas when I was 10. So okay. my stepfather um, got a job offer from 7-Eleven. He became a store manager. Uh, he packed up the family and we all moved to Texas. Okay. And we actually lived less than a mile away from Gillies where they shot Urban Cowboy. Oh my gosh. Wow. I and mean, that was, that was literally our life. Like we would go to Gillies. I would be 10 years old. We'd go to Gillies. I'd ride the mechanical bull. <laughs> my parents would drink beer. You are told by someone that you admire at a young age that you have a calling to be a leader and be a pastor. So you enroll in college and was this a four-year program? Uh, yeah, standard four-year liberal arts college, but with a Bible bent, I would say. It was straight up Friday Night Lights, and it was also Footloose. Yeah. Um, we had to sign you know, a piece of paper that we wouldn't dance. We weren't allowed to have foot functions. Um, guys weren't allowed in the girls' dorms, and vice versa, except on Sunday from 2 to 5, and you had to have the door open. Um, so it's, it was pretty strict. But I tell you what, it kept me safe. Like it was a great bubble to go from, you know, living at home to living on your own. Um, we just didn't, we just never had that craziness. And like we never went out and had crazy drunken nights. Um, you know, we would throw big bonfires, but you know, that was it. And somewhere along the way though, you, I don't want to say rebel, but you, you told me you had a, a moment that was done in front of the student body, you had to give a speech or something. There was, there was a defining moment. I don't want to speak for you, but there was a defining moment that happened while at the college, correct? <laughs> yes. I had a moment where every uh, ministerial student has to give uh, basically a speech at convocation or chapel. Um, and I sort of went outside the box with my thinking. And I'll just say that the administration didn't appreciate my message. And this is what year of school that you did this? I think that was my junior year. So from that point on, did things change for you at the school after you got reprimanded? Um, they just said, no, I mean, I, I was still accepted because I did have a good message. They just didn't like my methods. So um, they didn't appreciate it. So I, no, I mean, I was still embraced, but you know, they don't, they don't invite me back. <laughs> they don't invite you back now to this day as an alumni? Yeah. I'm not a distinguished alumni who found success. So what stopped you or did, did you get, I mean, what happened? You said you got ordained. So take me through what happens post-college and how you get ordained and what, what happened there. Sure. Well, I got, I got licensed before I even went to college. Um, oh, is that how that works? I didn't know that. That's Yeah, your church can license you. So I was licensed um, before I even went to college. But um, here's what really happened. So when you're an impressionable young uh, a person who is, again, sort of listening to this amazing orator speak, and then they play this swelling music, it creates a real emotional connection um, that's built truly on faith. Um, and when you get to college, they basically start with, okay, everything that you believe is founded on faith. Um, now let's break it down uh, and build it up on a foundation of knowledge. And when they broke it down, I started to question everything. I was like, well, why am I of this faith versus any other faith? Why do I believe in this religion, not this religion? I've, is it my product of my environment? I haven't been exposed to other religions. So from that point on, I had pr I pretty much decided that I was just going to approach it philosophically mm. as opposed to practically. Um, and I will say, I'm skipping way ahead, but as a programmer, as a buyer, as a producer, it helps to know what about 65 million people in the U.S. sort of will accept and won't accept in terms of content. It is amazing, though, 
I, I think that's what caught me off guard when you first told me this is in school to the school's credit, they break it down. Like you said, they, they break it down and you have to start what analyzing the Bible. You have to decipher what's metaphor and what is, what should be deemed literal, right? That's what you're talking about when it talks to, about breaking it down. Uh, yes. And also you study other world religions. And okay. once that came into place, I was like, man, there are a lot more Hindus than there are Christians. There's like, it was just a, a very different approach. Um, though I will, I gotta say it was still fascinating. Um, for example, to answer your other question, um, when you go back to the original sort of Greek, um, so the new Testament, um, all of the pronouns are gender neutral. Hmm. Um, and you're like, you know, there was no male, there's no female deacons, uh, you know, in most of the Southern Baptist churches, I think there are now, I'm not sure. But when, when I was reading in the Greek, I was like, this is gender neutral. Why? Why all of a sudden, why has this rule been made? Why am I Why am I following this sort of path that's been put out for me? Because someone just told me what it was. And what do you consider yourself today? Um, I am it seems, probably, it seems like It seems like you've asked yourself this many times. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I definitely pray when the plane takes off. And <laughs> <when> I, <that's, laughs> I mean, that's really my... Yeah, so that's that's really it. That's about you're it. So you're 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 a traveling Christian. Whenever you're on the road, <laughs> you want God to be by your side. You, no, but no, but like, do you do you believe in a higher power? I'm not sure. I think there might be something that connects us between this world and another world, and maybe a past world. But I don't I don't know what it is. But mm-hmm. I think if you don't believe in something. Um, anything, doesn't matter what that higher power is, then, you know, life can be a pretty big waste. So let's talk about your life more. So you get out of school, you graduate from the program. Where does young Jason go fresh out of college? So I moved to Dallas. Um, I lived in a town called Mesquite and I worked at a law firm and I considered going to law school I uh, took the LSAT, did all of that. But when I worked at the law firm, I realized how much I did not want to be a lawyer. And that started my love-hate relationship with business and legal affairs. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just knew it wasn't for me. And the only other thing I was good at was watching television. And the sort of moment that I realized I wanted to move to California to pursue this was um, my so-called life was on the air. And I loved it. I was really connected to that show. And Pulp Fiction came out in theaters. Um, And I went to see that movie with a friend of mine. And I don't know if you know, but it sort of starts in the middle and it comes full circle at the end. Uh, We walked out of the theater and I was really moved by it. I just thought it was just incredibly well done and creative and imaginative and visionary. Um, And uh, my friend said, I don't understand. So was John Travolta an agent? I mean, an angel? Like, because he came back to life? And I was like, no, dude. (laughs) Like, the movie started in the middle and it kind of came and I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to, I got to go hang out with people that care about this the way I do. Wait, So you saw, you saw better entertainment related, uh, discourse. That's what made you come to California. So you had people to talk yeah. movies. <laughs> Pretty much it. Yeah. I, I really thought that, um, my so-called, oh, wait, hold on. You throw out my so-called life. Where is my so-called life set? Is that a California school? No, I don't think so. I just, I okay, just it was just it was just the show. Just the show inspired you. Yeah. So Marshall Horskowitz, Ed Zwick created that. Um, a guy named Scott Winant directed it, and it was the first time I ever saw a transition where they went from scene to scene using like a door frame instead of cut as, as instead of a cut. They just would go through a door frame and you'd be in a new scene. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was super interesting. Yeah. Um, so I dissected the show quite a bit, and then um, and then I just fell in love with it, and and then I moved here. So did you just full on pack up the car and just head to California with no job? Yeah, 1986 Acura Integra, no brakes, no power steering, no air conditioning, and I just drove west. I had one friend who was at Pepperdine Law School, and she let me stay with her for a few days. Um, But after a few days, she was going back to Texas to do a a clerkship, and she was like, you can't stay here. So um, I sort of wandered around, found USC, figured out where the fraternities were, crashed a party because uh, um, it was the summer, right? It was like May, everyone's out so, and they rent out the rooms. And that's what oh. I heard. So I, I crashed a party, drank the beer. And then uh, when they all went to sleep, I stole a mattress 
and I moved into an empty bedroom and I lived there for four months and they didn't know. <laughs> Hold on. You full on crashed in a frat house for four months. Yeah. And no one asked you who you were or what you were doing there. They thought I was a student. I was 22. They thought I was there for summer school. So, and the people who ran the house, they, it was, it was the summer to them. They were just partying. So they weren't really paying attention. And I'm actually friends with several of them still. Come on. So were you I, like, I am. So were you, you were going to all the parties with them? You're, were you living like the summer frat life while squatting? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't, I can't explain why they didn't ask why I was there, but they just didn't. And I swear to God, I'm, I'm still friends with several of them. Okay. So that four months comes and goes. How did you get your first entertainment job? Let's go there. Well, I, at first I waited tables at Gladstone's in Malibu. Okay. Um, and I did that for like a year and a half. And then um, my first job came from a, a friend of mine who invited me to a party. Um, and at that party, I met enough people who worked in Hollywood that one of them gave me a shot. And isn't, isn't that a crazy thing to think about, Jay? I mean, we talk about sliding doors. You, you, your whole, you have one of the most important jobs in the unscripted business right now. And we'll get into that later. But you, you, you are now the president of Alternative for, for Fremantle, okay? One of the biggest studios in the history of our business. And it all starts from you going to a random ass party and meeting random people. And one of them just said, hey, I'll give, you, I'll give you a shot. You could have gone to another party five months later and someone gave you a shot working like in commercials and you could be like a marketing executive right now for all we know, right? It's just kind of amazing how these trajectories are set for us. It's, it's absolutely true. It's just wild. And my friend who invited me said, I don't know anybody at this party. Um, it's just, uh, he was waiting tables in, in Century City and there was a lawyer who came in every day and kind of hit on him. And he's like, ah, this guy kind of hits on me, but um, he's invited me to this party and I think he's an entertainment lawyer, so maybe we should go. And I was like, absolutely. And we did. And it was amazing. I met, you know, like David Geffman and um, uh, Heather Tom. And oh my God, this was a Dad real party. This was, no, this was a real party. It was a real party, but it was in like a, you know, it was a half decent house in Hancock Park. It wasn't anything spectacular, but it just happened to be one of those parties where but everyone was at. But David Geffen is still like co-head of DreamWorks at that point, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So this is this is still like there's heavy hitters. This isn't just some like you know Hollywood assistant mixer that you. That yeah, you no, to. it wasn't. It was it was heavy hitters. Anyhow, I met a gentleman named Kurt Sharp, um, who I worked with multiple times, and he um, gave me my first gig, which was a production assistant on MTV's hit game show Singled Out. Oh. Good one. With Jenny McCarthy and Chris Hardwick. Good one. What did Kurt do? Kurt was manager of development or manager of series, I'm not sure, at MTV under Lisa Berger. Okay. All right. So it's your first PA job. You're now working for MTV, which at that age you are, you're in your young 20s. MTV is like the coolest network you could be at at that point. So you've got to be riding high. Oh, it was amazing. I was 22 years old. Uh, working on Singled Out, surrounded by, you know, MTVers, that generation, um, and Jenny McCarthy. Yeah. I, who, by the way, I just, I literally just had a video conference with her like an hour no. ago. I swear to God, and we were talking about Singled Out. Did she know? Uh, she absolutely remembers. Because yeah. I was in charge of craft service, so everyone came <laughs> to craft service, right? Nobody misses craft service, so that was my gig. And yeah. it was great because I got to meet the writers, I got to meet the producers, I got to meet the talent. Uh, craft service is where everything happens. You also got to meet the 50 single bachelorettes every episode. I did, I did. Well, some of them. But I wasn't in casting. I was, I was, a, I was a set PA. All right, so you PA for a while. And what's, what's the job that really sets you up that comes out of that? Um, out of that... Um, I mean, it really wasn't out of that. Again, it was sort of out of my friendship with Kurt. He had another friend and there was an assistant opening at Sony for a writer producer who had an overall deal. And okay. her name is Pam Visay. And was that like your first assistant job? That was my first assistant job and I had no clue what I was doing. And, I, and, and this is another great story. So there were several people interviewing for this gig and um, we we're all sort of waiting in the hall and Pam wasn't showing up. And the phone kept ringing. And finally, I got up and answered the phone. No, you did not. Where to go? Answered the phone. It was Pam. Um, and she was very pregnant at the time. And she said, I'm not feeling well. I'm not coming in. 
Um, why don't you come in tomorrow and we'll just, you know, you can have the job. And that's how I got the gig. Wait, hold on, hold on. So you're waiting for your future boss to come to the interview and you're waiting with the other candidates? Yes. And the phone's just ringing. So you take the initiative to answer it. And on the other end is that person that would end up hiring you. That is correct. And, and okay, so when you get That's off that, the gig. so when you get off that phone call, what do I what, say? What, yeah. What do you say to the other bozos in the room? I didn't say a thing. I just walked out. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And I worked for her for four years and it was wonderful. She was, she, again, I've had amazing mentors. She brought me into the writer's room, taught me how to break story, taught me how to, you know, act by act, figure out what you're supposed to do in terms of cliffhanging to keep the audience invested. And even if scripted, you just apply that to unscripted. You do a lot of that. You know, we yep. cliffhang a lot of deal or no deal back in the day. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot of that from her. It's interesting you say that because I don't think people understand enough how uh, a scripted background of story structure can pay great dividends in the unscripted space. Tom Beers talked about it when I, when I spoke with him and he, he equated the, the act structure to deadliest catch or the story structure to deadliest catch as a classic three act, you know, play structure. All right. So you're working on the Sony, Sony lot. I'm guessing yep, at that point, on the lot. you're on the Sony lot. You're working in a scripted world. Um, how, how did you get to NBC? Cause there's a lot of career left. We got to cover. So how did you get to NBC? All right. So after I left Pam, I worked for a, a very prolific director named Rod Holcomb, um, who did the pilot episodes of ER, China Beach, Greatest American Hero, Scarecrow, Mrs. King, A-Team, Wise Guy. Like, oh my, he did the pilot for all those? Yep. Um, basically every Stephen J. Cannell and the early John Wells stuff. And, and, for uh, those that, and for those that don't know, when you are the director of a pilot, you get points. You get yeah. back end points on all those shows. Even if that's the only episode you ever direct, you get points for life. So that, that man did well for himself. He's, he's done all right. Yes. Um, and we were at Warner brothers and then we moved to Paramount and then, um, I sort of woke up one day and realized I had read like 5,000 scripts that were sent over. And I think I'd recommended like a hundred upstairs and like 30 sort of moved forward. And then six went into development and they made one pilot and that was it. One pilot in like three years, yeah. uh, which didn't get picked up. And I was like, all right, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to read 10 scripts a day on the weekends to never see anything come to light. It's also quite slow. Um, and circle back to Kurt Sharp gave me a ring and said, I'm starting at NBC next week and I need an assistant. Um, and at this point, I'd been an assistant for like six years. And I was like, oh, I really don't want to be an assistant anymore. And to his credit, he said he wouldn't treat me like one. And he never did. He invited mm -hmm. me in the room every time, every pitch, every shoot, every edit. Um, and that's really where I learned how to tell stories. And Kurt was a development executive, but was there even an alternative division yet? Is this him doing MOWs? What, what division was he in at NBC? There, there really wasn't an alternative division. Right. But there was a specials division, right? right? So the Golden Globes, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, things like that. Um, and we were basically that department for the most part. Rick Ludwin still did quite a few as well, but we were sort of the, the new kids on the block. Um, and then Millionaire hit on ABC and then Survivor hit on CBS. And they were like, all right, we have friends in ER and the West Wing and Frasier. We don't really want to get in that game. So just give it to the special department. And that was us. So immediately we were sort of thrust into that world. And then quite shortly thereafter, Garth Antier left as president. Jeff Zucker came in. He hired Jeff Gaspin. And then Jeff sort of revamped the entire department. And then how long was Gaspin there before Kevin Riley came in? Oh, it had to be a few years. Okay. At least two or three. Um, so that early yeah. team, that early team, when they, when really the, the alternative boom hits, right? The post, the post millionaire, post survivor era, right? Is really when it happens. Who, who is that NBC alternative team at that point? Who's in that department with you? So Jeff came in and it was Kurt and me as the assistant uh, slash coordinator. Um, and, and then Jeff was also in charge of minis and movies, right? Movies of the week and miniseries. So he had Stephen Balka, Jamila Hunter, and Jen O'Connell, two other massively yeah. successful folks in this business. And Jeff went to Jen and Jamila separately and said, you know, we're not going to be doing as many movies, but this unscripted thing is really taking off. 
um, would you ever consider sort of shifting over and taking that on instead? And to their credit, they both said yes, and they both knocked it out of the park. I mean, literally, if you think about that team at the time, it was yeah. they, everybody has gone on to do really amazing things. It's an incredible, no, it's incredible alumni. And then I've, and I've talked with Jen about it, Gaspin and Jamila before, and it's, it's mind blowing, but what was the first NBC reality show that you really started to dive into? And it was like your baby and your coverage. What was that first like assignment where it's like, all right, Jason, we're taking the training wheels off and you're going to be the, the exec on this. Well, I, I sort of cut my bones on Fear Factor. I wasn't the executive on it, but I definitely was the number two executive on it as mm -hmm. a baby, baby exec. So I got to see how a show was made. And with, again, sort of really great mentors with Matt Kunitz and Luke Thompson and just really wonderful people. Um, but my first show, the, the first two shows I did was I had to recut World's Most Amazing Videos from hour longs into half hours. And then I had to repurpose Crocodile Hunter uh, episodes into NBC specials. And they were doing like 28 million viewers. It was, <laughs> man, right? But the first series I did uh, was a show called Dog Eat Dog. Yeah, I remember Dog Eat Dog. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But, but for those who don't remember, what, was the what is the log line of Dog Eat Dog? I mean, I know it was studio-based oh. and it was there was physical challenges in there. But what, yeah, what, what, I mean, it's going to be confusing because it's it has some similar elements to Weakest Link, and we also did Weakest Link. Um, but basically, it's a group of people who um, sort of challenge each other to do physical challenges. Um, they basically say they don't think this person can do it, and then they have to go run on a treadmill above a pool okay. um, for a certain amount of time. But the interesting story there is on day one of taping, uh, things were going slow. And it was Matt Kunitz, Stuart Krasnow, and myself. Um, um, and Rob LaPlante was actually our casting director at that oh, point. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we, it was day one, things were not going well. And, um, we were in like our 20th hour of taping and we just <laughs> wanted to finish one episode. So this is my first day as the executive in charge of the show. Um, and we have a massive major incident where, um, one of our contestants, uh, basically drowned, um, and had to be brought back to life. Um, resuscitation and rushed off to the hospital. And Did they make it? Yeah, they made it. Um, yes, absolutely. We were sued, but you know, it, it actually all worked out. I mean, I probably shouldn't be talking about it much, but it all worked out um, because he was he was actually quite fine. But it looked very scary on tape. But that's the first show that you're covering. That's what I'm saying. Day one, and I think, and it's two o'clock in the morning, and I think I we I just hurt this guy really bad, and I have to call Jeff Gaspin and wake him up in the middle oh, of the night. Oh my God! And I was like, Jeff, we have a problem. <laughs> um, and uh, but look, there, there were a lot of really talented producers there as well. But being the executive on the show, I thought I literally finally get promoted, and on my first day, <laughs> I lost my gig. I'm never there's a near there, yeah. There's a now. near death near death experience. Yeah. And I thought for sure I was done. I thought that I was going to get fired. Tell me about Minute to Win It. That, you were a point on that, right? Um, yes, but I left before they produced it. So Minute to Win It uh, was a show that was pitched to us by the guys at Friday TV, okay. which was then absorbed into the End of All Shine group. One of them, sadly, is no longer with us. Um, but they pitched this idea to me at MIP. Um, and you, took the, you took the pitch. I did. Craig Plestis and I took the pitch. I think Craig was there. I'm pretty sure he was there. We took the pitch and I really sparked to it. There was something super, super interesting. It was a very simple animated uh, pitch reel. And uh, it had elements that I loved. It had escalating sort of um, a, a money ladder that escalates. It's one person versus the impossible. Um, you know, very David and Goliath, very deal or no deal, very millionaire in its scope. Um, and I sparked to it right away. Um, Craig did not spark to it as much. Um, he just, you know, wasn't his thing. So I hip pocketed it for about six months and worked with the producers to sort of get it to a place where I thought we could bring it back up upstairs. And during that time, Craig left the network and Paul Telegdi came in. Um, and so when Paul came in, I sort of put it on his desk and my plan was for that to be my exit. Because mm -hmm. I know if you can, if you can show run a game show, you can make quite a bit of money quite quickly because you can do more than one a day. Yep. So that was my plan. Um, I did not get it. And ironically, they gave it to Craig Plestis to produce. 
Oh my gosh. I know. Do you, do you still talk to Craig? Yeah. I'm really happy for him. He's really found success with the mass singer and the mass dancer. He's really, he's really found his, vo- his voice and his pacing and Wh- his shows are unique. Why Guy Fieri? Um, I was gone by then. Um, okay. I mean, I, I shouldn't say I was gone by then. I was definitely involved in those meetings. He just came in and got it right away. Right. He, um, and he, he cared. And he also is very broad in appeal. Right. 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 You know, he plays to the middle of the country. It's a little bit what I was talking about earlier. I kind of know what the middle of the country would like to watch. And the same with the same with Deal or No Deal. I mean, talking about playing to the middle of the country, that was that was you as well, right? You were across Deal or No Deal. Yes. Yes. I took the pitch. I loved it. And by the end of the day, Gaspin had played it and we bought five episodes. What was the pitch? Played the game. He came in with 26 note cards. And on the back of the note card was a different money amount. It was Eugene Young and this guy named Dick Derek. Dick Derek. Um, and I just sat at a table and I played it. I flipped it and flipped it. And I actually had the million dollars, which was amazing. Um, and I just fell in love with the tension. And they literally played it just as you watched it. They hosted it as if, you know, uh, we'll be back after this. And, you know, uh, and, and it was great. It was, it, I loved it. I just loved the game. And what really had happened was, I woke up one day and said, there hasn't been a true great game show since Millionaire. There had been games, but nothing really connected. So I reached out to Eugene Young, who was at Endemol, and I said, hey, do you have anything in the game space? I think it's time for the next breakout game. Um, And he said, yes, I do. And he came in the very next day and pitched Deal or No Deal, and then that thing took off. Did he have the women holding the briefcases as part of the cell? Or was that something that came later of how the briefcases would be displayed and, and what the devices would be for opening it? Was that part of the pitch? Yeah, that was definitely part of the pitch. And it had been in different iterations around the world. Um, but, oh, so it was already but, a pre-existing format. Yes, it had been in five or six territories before it came to the U.S. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, and, and how many years had it been around? Um, I mean, it had to be a few because ABC actually bought it when Andrea Wong was there and they made episodes and never aired them. Oh my God. And the option expired. They took it down a different route. They were doing more like a Mike Myers sort of shabalicious kind of take. Um, and ours was just a straight, you know, straight models. Like an Austin Powers type, like 70s. Definitely kind of, went down that path. That's what I was told. Like um, in terms of the set design and, and all that. Yes. And wardrobe and, you know, et cetera. That's fascinating. I never knew that. So yeah, they, they, they made it. They never aired it. They produced episodes and then they buried it. And did you guys have to end up paying back ABC to get it out? Or, or by that time, the options had passed? The option had passed. Um, and I mean, maybe Endemol paid them something, but not that I know of. And the Howie story, I feel like I listened to Howie on a podcast where he told the story of hosting. And it was really down to the wire, right? What, wasn't it that other offers were made and there had to be a host found like immediate, immediately to shoot the pilot? Is that right? We- we struggled to find a host for the longest time because it's such a unique skill set. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you have to be able to play to the contestant and not steal the thunder. You have to be able to play to the in-studio audience, but you also have to be able to play to the home audience. So having that many layers, you really need someone who's sort of a master of ceremonies, um, not just a host. Uh, and Howie was perfect. We went we went down the path a few different times. Um, and then Howie came from... Um, you know, Rob Smith and Eugene and that whole team at Endemol, they cornered him in a Jerry's Deli uh, and how he wanted nothing to do with it. Um, but after playing it, they convinced him really well. And then we had to sell it up. And um, that wasn't the hardest part. It wasn't easy, but the hardest part was sort of getting Howie's wardrobe approved. Mm. Um, you know, like at that point, it, it, I wouldn't say he was wearing Von Dutch, but he had a he had a look. He had earrings and big silver rings that he wore in his hands, um, and not your traditional you know three piece suit game show host at that time. Um, and so this is how I got his wardrobe approved. So I took a picture of Howie and all the models behind him, big wide shot, and I sent the picture up and I said, "Here's the wardrobe for the show." Oh Everybody God! Okay with it? <laughs> and everybody said yes. And then, of course, like, you know, a day later, it's like, why is he wearing earrings? Why is he wearing when the, when the show aired? Oh, my gosh. That's so great. That's so great. You knew they weren't. Yeah, you knew their attention wasn't going to be drawn to Howie um, in front of the 30 briefcases. Or is it 30 briefcases? I'm trying to remember. 26. 26. Um, and when you say send it up, 
who did you have to send it up to? Are you sending it to Gaspin or Zucker at that point? Um, both, right? Okay. Gaspin, Zucker, um, probably sent it to head of marketing and press. You know, it's it one of those global emails to, to folks like, what do you think? Do you think it looks great? So is the love for game shows something you discovered through the course of your NBC experience? Or did you have any sort of childhood connection to game shows? I didn't realize I had such a connection to game shows until I started producing them. Like, it wasn't like I wanted to be a game show producer. But once we did, I started realizing how many game shows I watched growing up. I watched all of them. Joker's Wild, Pressure Luck. Um, um, you know, I, I watched Price is Right. I, I watched Newlywed Game. I watched, I mean, literally everything. Every single game show. I just didn't, Sale of the Century, I just didn't realize that I was that had that affinity. I think right. a lot of it was watching them with my grandmother when I was young. We move on from NBC. And I'm going to, because I'm going to lose you in a little bit. Let's get to CMT. Um, you are made the EVP of production and development at CMT, post your NBC run. What was it about CMT? What was it about the gig that, that drew you in at the time? I remember when I read that, and I think I told you this, because we ended up working together on a show, and we'll talk about that in a second. But we talked about this. When you got to CMT, I thought it was one of the smartest moves ever, because at that time, CMT's ratings had nowhere to go but up. They, they really had not thrown a lot of money yet into original content, correct? No, nope, that's exactly my thought. So I had talked to USA about going over there, uh, Jeff Wachtel, for a hot minute. And, um, and then I kind of sort of realized that they were number one. Like, there's nowhere to go but down. I had just left a channel that was number one when I got there and was number five when I left because Univision was beating NBC. Wow. Um, and cable was all the rage. Like, you know, they had the, the dual revenue streams from distributors and advertising. At that time, networks didn't have the second stream of advertising. I mean, se second stream of distribution. So they were losing money. So I was like, I got to jump ship and go work in the world of cable um, and produce. So I show ran for two, for like a year and a half, I show ran two shows for NBC. And then um, the CMT gig came up again. I think I was recommended for it by Jeff Gaspin. Wow. Um, and... Uh, and here's how I got the gig. So I, I wasn't even that into it, which is why I think I got it. Like, I, 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 you know, I was super calm and comfortable in the interview process. Um, and then by the third interview, it was real. I wanted this job because I realized I could build something and they were going to let me try. Um, and so my boss uh, uh, said the my future boss at that time, he was just interviewing me, said, all right, put pen to paper. What would you do for the first hundred days? So I went home and I literally wrote my Jerry Maguire manifesto and it was like eight pages. And then I had other people weigh in and fix it because I'm not a great writer, um, which helped quite a bit. Uh, and then um, I sent it over and I swear to God, within an hour, he called me and said, you have the gig. Um, wow. And he said, listen, you got the gig because you did the work. Um, he had had several other people in the mix for a couple of years, um, but no one would do the work. They would just say, well, I did this show or I did this show. Nobody really wanted to put pen to paper. And by the way, if you look at what I wrote now, it's absolutely not what we did. I, mean, <laughs> I, had, I had no understanding of CMT or the types of uh, programming that their viewers would want to watch. Did you find that all your experience at NBC and CMT, being on the buyer side, being in that chair, knowing what it's like to have to push something through, has that paid dividends now at Fremantle on the producing side? 100% because I understand the struggle. I understand yeah. all of the hoops they have to jump through. And now it's like decision by committee or data. Um, and it's, you know, when in, in the heyday for us, I should, should say in my heyday, we just bought things off a log line or a title and then figured it out later. Tell, tell um, me, wait, tell me, tell me about that. Cause I, I, I love that era and I, you've listened to the show. So, you know, I, I love people telling me these stories of like early days of reality when series were going off based on a one pager. If, if that, tell me, tell me one of the series orders you were involved in that basically came off of hardly any pitch materials. Every one of them for the first five or six years. So, um, uh, meet my parents, mm -hmm. I think is what it was called. Um, who wants to marry my dad? Literally every original idea that we made at NBC was basically a log line or an email. I mean, I, I believe Meet My Parents. I think that's what it's called. Meet Meet the Folks. Meet the Folks might have been what it is. Yeah, the and it was like the real Reading Crashers. Was that you guys too? Was that NBC? Yeah, that was us. That was Ashton Kutcher. And I, I believe that was Ashton Kutcher and Jason Goldberg. 
And it's uh, just like, these are just, these are just like, they come in and they just have a conversation with you. And it's like, okay, let's do it. Here's eight episodes. Like that was it, right? Absolutely. I'm telling <laughs> you, Meet the Folks was, was bought off an email. It was a one sentence email from Bruce Nash to Jeff. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing, Jason. I mean, and we would give out 13 episode orders right, right out of the gate. It was always like, well, I don't know where we came up with 13, but it was always 13 episodes. But also the business was so new at that point. There were only like eight companies that even knew how to make these types of shows because it was, it was early days. Oh, anyone who worked at Buna Murray at that time, it doesn't matter what your role was. You were an executive producer on a broadcast network show the, the, a month after Survivor hit. Is that right? So if I was just like, a, a, you know, a supervising producer on, on Road Rules, if I came in and pitched something, the, the shine, so to speak, the glow of the Buna Murray name was enough to get something of mine on the air? Is that how it Oh, works? yeah. There's so many. Chris Abrego. Like we gave him, uh, he was a showrunner for us on a series. And I, I literally think he was a supervising producer on <laughs> Real World. I'm telling you, it was, it was wild. It was so much fun. And I like to think that our success rate versus the success rate now is probably equal, if not better, because they're making so many more shows. Though I will say it's more difficult now because there's so, so much more content and so many more platforms. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the state of where things are today. We are living in the, the era of the game show renaissance on broadcast primetime television, right? And you and Fremantle are at the forefront of that. Tell me where I'm wrong. Cause I was just going through the Fremantle catalog today. Cause I wasn't going to ask you all the shows you're working on because I'm sure it'd be hard to remember off the top of your head. You probably need your grid in front of you. This is what I came up with. And I'm sure some things are wrong here. Maybe some things are just Fremantle distribution and not production, but AGT, fam Family Feud, stop me when I'm wrong on something that you, you guys actually don't produce, okay? okay. AG AGT, Family Feud, Price is Right, Match Game, American Idol, Game of Talents, Double Dare for Nickelodeon, Supermarket Suite, To Tell the Truth, Pressure Luck. What am I missing? Um, the Great Christmas Light Fight. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I didn't get to write them down fast enough, but we have, I think we have seven, six or seven game shows at ABC at this point. Oh my God. Um, and American Idol and Great Christmas Light Fight. We have eight series at ABC in primetime. AG at NBC, we do Price is Right, Let's Make a Deal, and Price is Right Primetime, and Let's Make a Deal Primetime for CBS, Game of Talents at Fox. Uh, we produce Regular Family Feud. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big machine. Unbelievable, man. So you step into that gig off the street. I mean, you hadn't been in the Fremantle Cap camp previous to that, right? So you come from CMT and you step into the gig at Fremantle and you inherit a tremendous amount of business and a lot of shows under your purview. So talk me through coming in as the outsider and now you're running what is not a small department. Well, I definitely was familiar with Fremantle. I mean, well, of course you know, you're familiar, but you don't, you're not day to day. Like, you know, it wasn't like you had been show running one of their shows and like been inside the infrastructure. Right. You're coming from a network at CMT and then you step in and now you're overseeing this entire giant slate. So uh, the look, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of help. Let's just say that it's not just me. Like I, I, I really don't do anything on idle or AGT or, you know, for prices, right. Or let's make a deal. Those, those are on the tracks and they're doing well. The last thing they need is for another voice in the mix. Um, and so I'm really charged with managing the, um, the, the legacy library and then creating new ideas and selling them. And then also, um, finding the formats that our global teams come up with and trying to exploit them in the U S. Um, and that's a pretty big pipeline as well. Uh, I, I will say this. I was familiar because I took the pitch for AGT. And they remembered that. Um, and I liked the show. Um, so uh, I, I think there was a bit of an affinity there. And I did have a track record of identifying global hits. Um, and I think that played a role, you know, being the one that's found deal or no deal, you know, AGT. Um, it was, it helped. So from a global perspective, they, they thought that dude can spot a hit. And I think that that's pretty true. Um, being a student of the game, being seasoned in this genre now, the shiny floor genre, let's say, what is the best game show of all time in your opinion? Oh, wow. That is a really tough question. 
the best game show of all time. What's the GOAT? I, mean, I asked Bob, I asked Bob Bowden, I asked Bob Bowden the same question. Yeah. I mean, I, I would probably go Price is Right. right? That's what I he think, said. I'm yeah, pretty, I'm pretty sure that's what right. he said. But I was struggling because I will say Millionaire is a really great format. It really is. And that's a sort of a contemporary one, but Price is Right for sure. What is the DNA of a great game show? Um, it has to have a little bit of wish fulfillment. It has to have a little bit of risk. It has to have an incredible amount of fun. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, and, and it has to have things that you can connect to in a major way. Like when, when they roll Plinko out on Price is Right, people go bananas, <laughs> right? Or it's a new car. Like they just, you know, that's, they've been doing that for 50 years. So a familiarity. I also think um, a big part is keeping the same time slot. Right. So people know when Family Feud is on. Yeah. People know when Price is Right is on. And when it's preempted, if it's moved around and my grandmother can't find Price is Right, she's confused. She's like, I don't understand where's Price is Right. So I think consistency in scheduling, especially if you're stripping across a week. You just mentioned your grandmother. And I was gonna I was gonna ask about the audience for game shows. Because to me, I just feel like the game show genre in general. Is, is a previous generation's genre. And I don't know what the appetite is for young 20-somethings or teenagers to sit and watch a game show from beginning, middle to end. But you're in this business. You, you know more about that than I do. Do you, do you worry that the generation coming behind the Target demo right now are not filled with game show enthusiasts? Um. No, I'm not worried about that at all. I mean, I do think that there is some truth to the fact that there, the game shows populated television years and years ago in such a major way that people sort of have it as part of their DNA. But much like people have discovered Friends um, 25 years later, this next generation is watching Friends or The Office or The Sopranos, um, they discover it. And yeah. I, think, I think that if there were more snow days, they'd be watching Price is Right. I guarantee it. Do they do these focus groups? Like when they bring back these reboots, are they doing focus groups and getting a sense of how people not familiar with the original view the show? Like, I, like for example, like, do you learn from a focus group what a 22-year-old thinks of Supermarket Sweep having never maybe seen the original, not even knowing what the original is? The same with To Tell the Truth and, and so on. Do you ever, does that ever come up? We absolutely do the research on that. Okay. And, um, and if it is a good format, if it stands the test of time, it connects with them. Yeah. Um, and I also would say that there is a version of the modern day game show that is the mass singer, that is the voice, that is American Idol, that is like their performance, but they're, all, they're also competition. I don't know if you ever lie awake at night in a dark room like I do staring at the ceiling, but I, I, I tend to like think about, okay, where is our business headed five years from now? And right now we're living in this renaissance of reboots on broadcast. And I'm just talking strictly broadcast television, right? What comes after the, the reboot era is, is over? And you're a Patriots fan. So let me use an analogy here that you'll connect with. I always think about Tim Tebow and Tim Tebow's last shot in the NFL was with who? The Patriots. Your Patriots. And after things didn't work there, his career was over because everyone looked around and was like, if Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels can't use this guy, why should my team think that our coaches are any likelier to do it? And I think the same with the television business. People are looking around, and once the reboot era has come and gone, people are going to be like, look, I couldn't get people to show up and watch with shows they already knew, pre-existing IP. Why should I think that I can launch something new and fresh? So what do you have to say to the people out there that maybe are worried that the broadcast, specifically the broadcast networks, aren't a place for original ideas anymore? Um, I would say that, that is just not true. Um, I, I don't think the broadcast buyers sit around all day and 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 want to only make reboots of uh, past shows. I think most of them want to champion something that's new and original. Mm -hmm. It is difficult, but I, I think they want to. Um, the and that, to answer your question about what happens after the sort of reboot generation goes away, um, it'll go away for like three years and then it'll <laughs> come back. These. Legacy game shows are cyclical. 
they'll just go, they'll go away for a little bit and then they'll come back and they'll go away for a little bit and they'll come back. As long as it's a truly, truly great format. I think something like deal or no deal might struggle because at the end of the day, there is, there is no play along. There is no game. The play along is just you sitting at home yelling at the TV, whether or not for them to take the deal or not, right. or trying to figure out what's in the case. Right. But there's no true play along. So I think that one might struggle because at the end of the day, it's a game of luck and just luck. There's really no skill involved whatsoever. Um, but but other than that, any show that has a built-in fan base and is a bulletproof format, it, it can go away for a few years, but it will come back. What's the one reboot that hasn't happened? Doesn't have to be a Fremantle thing, but what is the one reboot that hasn't happened that you as a fan wish wish would? What's the one thing that you wish would come back, whether it's under your IP or not? Uh, no, I mean, I think it would be under our IP and it's Password. I haven't seen oh, Password in a while. Interesting. When was the last run for Password? Um, 2007, 2008, they did Million Dollar Password on uh, CBS. Okay. Mine's, that mine, mine's That's Incredible. It's so funny. I, I, get, I get calls every week as to whether we have the rights to That's Incredible, and we don't. NBCU does call NBCU, but that's, um, that's that's what I can't get my head around. How has NBCU not done anything with that yet, or at least tried it as a special? Like I just don't I don't get it. What's the holdup? Well, I think that the what they would do on that's incredible is now represented in other ways, right? So it's represented on America's Got Talent. Yeah, going to be represented on Game of Talents on Fox March tenth, nine p.m. after the Mass Singer. Tune in. Um, uh, that was shameless. No, that's it? beautiful. It's beautiful. I don't um, think, I don't think they, they even are. noticed. I don't think they even noticed the plug. It was so, but, <laughs> it yeah. was so subtle. I, I wasn't going to plug anything. <laughs> it just happened to be timed perfectly. Um, look, I think that's incredible is one of those titles that no matter what, if they could figure out a way to reboot it, it would connect and it would yep. connect in a big way. Even if they're just showing the same things we do on AGT and, you know, game of talents, it's, it just would connect because that title is huge. The rights are a little bit tricky. We actually have global rights, um, but here in the U.S., I think they lie at NBCU. Got it. Okay. And one last question: What's the one project you were completely wrong on? What did you What did you miss? What did you just not see in the moment that went on to be a success? We wow. talk about the wins. We got to talk about the losses too. I know. I mean, I'm just trying to think. There, there have been many. <laughs> I mean, can I literally, can I get back to you on that? And we'll, cause I'll get you a list, but I, I'm just drawing a blank. My brain always goes to the things that I missed, not the things that, that I missed out on, not the yep. things that I got wrong. And the thing that I just couldn't push through was dancing with the stars. Oh, that, oh that's beautiful. Now tell me about that. I took the pitch three times. I thought there was something really unique. Um, having grown up watching Lawrence Welk with my mom and my grandmother, um, specifically my grandmother. I just, I loved that show. And I just thought, and, and Strictly Ballroom was a movie that had come out from Australia not too long before. Um, and I found that movie amazing. And I was like, there's enough going on here. It's live. It has celebrities. There's, it's really sexy yep. in, a, in a big way. And um, it has that sort of the Lawrence Welk feel, right? So I was in um, and I brought it upstairs three times. And uh, the last time I brought it up, <laughs> and I have to preface this with saying, I'm so thankful to Jeff Gaspin because I owe him so much for my career, um, so much. But he basically told me if I brought up that stupid ballroom dancing show one more time, I was going to be out of a job. <laughs> but that just shows, like, nobody knows. Nobody at that point, nobody knows. I know we missed Idol. Um, but look, at that, literally at that point, um, you know, I think Idol probably felt like Star Search. I don't think anyone quite wrapped their brain around how big it could possibly be and how it could capture the collective sort of interest of the nation. We didn't know. We we were literally just, you know, we were just throwing things at the dartboard that we thought would work. And for us, I think we were just doing more comedic things. When you say you took the pitch for Dancing with the Stars three times, what does that mean? It was pitched to me three times. So there were three different people who pitched it. At one point it was... I mean, so, the BBC, BBC Productions came out, or BBC Worldwide, and uh, they pitched me, um, and I liked it, couldn't get it through. And then I think Telegdi pitched it to me twice when he wow. was at BBC When Worldwide. he was at BBC, yeah. And, um, and on the third one, I was bring it up again. But that's and amazing, he, because, it, so that's, that's over some, some time there. 
that this show was out there trying to be sold. And it wasn't just you guys. Clearly, the other networks didn't bite for quite some time. If you were able, at least two years. Yeah, if you were able to hear three iterations of the pitch, that means everybody else was, was passing. Yeah. I mean, wow. but that happened all the time. Until someone takes a chance. I mean, Andrea, Andrea Wong, I will say, was probably way out in front of anyone else in the broadcast space for being able to recognize the appeal of a global format. Well, dude, anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? I appreciate you finally agreeing to do this. I know you're a private guy. I know you don't like to talk about yourself. So I know this is out of your comfort zone, but I really appreciate it. Oh, man, I can't wait to see what the flack is. Um, no, man, I just appreciate you pushing and making me do it. And I, you know, I miss you. I don't, I, I wish we could hang out more. I know. Like, I, that's, that's the sad part about you not being, uh, you know, a buyer anymore. I don't have just the built-in excuse to see you like once a month just to like catch you during a pitch or something. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I will end on this. I will say having been a buyer for over 20 years and then flipping to this side, I wish I would have done it sooner. Because I would have been a better buyer. I absolutely would have been a better buyer. Um, um, hmm. Because I, I now, I was one of those buyers who was very producer friendly um, and yeah. definitely trusted my producers to do their, their gigs. I mean, they do their job and deliver. Um, but I thought I was a producer's executive, meaning like I'm producing the show. Um, and that's not the case. <laughs> There's not. The, when you're a buyer, you're not really producing the show. Um, there are some that are very hands-on and and are going to be amazing producers. But just having been on this side now, I just realized now what I didn't know that I thought I knew when I was a buyer. Well said, man. And if well I ever said. go back, I'll be a better buyer. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible. We got through an hour-long sit-down and both of us had the restraint not to tell any Dog the Bounty Hunter stories. <laughs> No, we'll um, we'll let those lie for now. We'll let we'll we'll just keep we'll keep that for for offline. Uh, yeah. Those 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 stories from our experiences over at CMT. Hey, I really enjoyed this. I'll do it again sometime. <laughs> if, you know, there's still many 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 stories. I had Bravo shows that we did, and oh man, what, what, do you want to just give a quick shout out to a favorite Bravo show? Um, I will still give you one one yeah. story. Um, I was making a show, um, in New York. And Jeff Gaspin handed me a VHS tape of um, a Project Runway. And oh, wow. uh, it was like a first cut of the show back when you watched cuts on VHS. And I begged him to let me have it. I was like, you can have this show that I'm spending a million dollars an episode on. Um, you give me that show and I'll put it on NBC. And I think the first season of Project Runway was like $250,000 an episode. Or Are you serious? Oh, yeah. It was some crazy low number. You got to ask Dan and Jane about it. They were all like living in Jane's best friend's apartment. The entire crew were all just like sleeping on floors. They pulled that thing off. But I remember just, it was so good. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad that they didn't, that Jeff didn't give it to me. Um, wouldn't agree to it because I, I don't think it would have worked on NBC because it needed the time to be exposed. Mm -hmm. And then they needed to really stack it and let people binge it over the weekends. And that's really when it became a massive hit. I think they that's did like a like a Christmas marathon. That's a great point you make though, in that had it just been on a different network, that could have been the end. That could have been the end for one of the Hall of Fame greatest formats in the history of our business. And branding and network and audience matters. And have you now been in a position at Fremantle where you've had, you've had a network that maybe has a better offer on the table, but you've had to make a judgment call not to go that way because you don't believe at the end of the day that their audience is the right audience? Have you had to make that tough decision? Many times, multiple, I shouldn't say many, but multiple times. And I'm not going to give you an example. <laughs> but that, no, you can't give me the example, but that, I mean, that's gotta be the worst freaking conversation for you to have with a network to say, yes, I'm actually taking a worse offer elsewhere because I, I don't mean, I'll, I'll like give you one sort of example. So I took supermarket sweep out and we sold it um, to a cable network. Um, and uh, I was struggling to make the deal happened. It was just, you know, cable network deals are difficult and it was a format that had been exploited. So we really wanted to retain the rights and I ultimately couldn't make the deal. Um, and two years later, you know, we took it out. We got multiple offers with, Le with Leslie Jones attached and made it at ABC. Um, and it, it was a difficult decision not to make the sale um, to the cable network. It was like, here's a series opportunity. Um, but I wisely 
um, said it's a, it, the format is going to survive and we'll find another home eventually. And less than two years later, we sold it. And Leslie Jones, the perfect, I mean, you want to talk about the perfect host for a I, show. She came to us. She, she reached out to us. She was like, um, I, I'm, I'm, she just said, there's only one show that I want to do and it's Supermarket Sweep. It's the only thing I want to do. I don't want to do anything else ever again. I just want to do Supermarket Sweep. just want to host it. See, um, that's, that's the benefit of being in a unique position at Fremantle is you, you do get the incoming calls. We do. You do get the, but, I mean, let's, let's, you know, let's, I mean, it's not easy out there for producers selling in the streets. You do get some great incoming calls. Hey, we sold three original series last year. That's I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not questioning <laughs> your ability to sell, but like, that's why you take that job. That's the benefit of being at a place like that. You have, you have something in your library and you get the incoming call one day that you don't expect. Um, there's a couple things I'll say. One is, yeah, man, uh, you know, I was a network guy for 20 years. It was very scary to me to leave the network and then jump to the side without a parachute or a safety net. And to go to a sort of global media conglomerate with an amazing library and amazing people really helped soften the landing of leaving the network gig. Um, I think I would have been hard pressed to go raise some money and hang out a shingle like you did. I just think it would have been difficult for me because I was in the seat for so long. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's not easy to do that later on in life. So going to Fremantle was amazing and the company is awesome. You know? Yeah. yeah. How many years now has it been? Um, I've been there. I started in 2018, January, 2018. So a little over three years, man. That's, it's amazing how much happens in just three years. Like when you really, when you, it doesn't seem like a significant amount of time, but that's a lot of projects and a lot of series and a lot of green lights in, in three years time since you first got there. Well, they had, they had several of them lined up in the know, queue in the air pattern, right? They were, they were going to be landed pretty quickly. Thanks for doing this. Did you have fun? It was good, right? It was great. I literally (laughs) forgot we were recording this. I really did. All right, man. Thanks. I appreciate you doing it. All right. Have a good weekend. Talk to you soon.